Welcome to Dispatches, the official podcast for the Journal of the American Revolution. The Journal of the American Revolution publishes weekly online at www.allthingsliberty.com. For the latest in research, reviews, and commentaries, America's Most Important History is available free of charge at the Journal of the American Revolution. The Continental Army easily could have disbanded at multiple points in the war, particularly when it first starts right outside of Boston, and then again after the defeat at New York. That was a real precarious moment. Uh, That army barely held together. That's Journal of the American Revolution contributor Mike Matheny talking about how paperwork saved the Continental Army. And he's our guest today. I'm Brady Kreitzer, and this is Dispatches. This episode is brought to you by the Camden Archives and Museum, now featuring the interactive exhibit, Turning Points, The Battles of Camden, 1780 and 1781. For more information, visit classicallycarolina.com. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome back to another episode of Dispatches. I'm your host, Brady Kreitzer. Today our guest is Journal of the American Revolution contributor Mike Matheny, and he'll be talking about the importance of paperwork in the Continental Army. Now, I know what you might be thinking. Paperwork, right? Uh, who needs it, and especially who wants to hear about it in a podcast? But Mike Matheny, who's an adjutant general, uh, by the way, deals with paperwork a lot, has a very interesting perspective on why paperwork is so important for an army in the modern world and in the revolutionary world, and just really how important it was uh, for the Continental Army specifically, primarily because, quite frankly, they were so bad at it. Uh, You see what an army looks like when it has a good structure of communication and efficiency, as was the case with the British Army, and you see what an army looks like when it's barely getting by, as was the case with the Continental Army. Of course, the Continental Army does get its act together, largely because they copy the British. It's an interesting topic we don't think about a lot, and it's one I find to be very helpful. So sit back, relax, and enjoy our interview with Mike Matheny. Mike Matheny, thank you for joining us. Hey, Brady, thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Tell us about your background. Well, I'm from Carlisle, Pennsylvania. I uh, went to James Madison University, Uh, For my undergrad, I got a bachelor's in history there. I also did the Army ROTC, so I've been working as an Army officer, as an adjutant general officer, which is, in layman's terms, the human resources officer uh, for the U.S. Army. I've been doing that for about eight or nine years now. Uh, Currently, I'm at the University of Maryland uh, working on a master's degree, uh, also in U.S. history. What first drew your interest into this topic? Sure. Uh, The article came out of a paper I wrote for a seminar class in early America for one of my grad classes. And I knew I wanted to write about the Continental Army. I was looking for a way to to narrow the topic and grab onto something more specific. And I started uh, thinking about, I wonder who did my job that I do today in the Army as an adjutant general? Who did that back in the Continental Army? And what was that like? Uh, So I started looking through mostly George Washington's letters, uh, particularly to Joseph Reed, who's the governor of Pennsylvania. Uh, Joseph Reed was also an adjutant general, the second adjutant general of the Continental Army. And he asked Joseph Reed about five times, this is Washington asking Joseph Reed, please come work for my headquarters, I need your help uh, really bad. And I said, well, that's kind of interesting. So I started looking at Joseph Reed a little bit, 
And the more I read uh, Washington's letters to Reed, uh, I just keep seeing references to personnel issues and things that related to my current job and present day about he was complaining about there's not enough people in the army, recruitment's going really slow, everyone's deserting, there's all these personnel problems. I was just like, wow, it sounds like they had a really big problem with this. There must be a lot to this. And so I, I just started going in that direction. And then uh, the class I was in took a trip to the uh, Maryland Historical Society in Baltimore, and they had some archives there. And I held in my hands a, an original strength report. It was a, a muster roll uh, from a, a Maryland unit, uh, I think the Smallwood Battalion uh, in Maryland. And it was just kind of one of those, uh, you know, moments historians sometimes have when you hold the original document in your hand. Like, wow, look, this, this muster roll, it's handwritten, it's got every soldier's name in there, their date of rank, all this information about the soldiers. And I said, wow, this looks exactly like what I do today for the U.S. Army, that they're doing the exact same thing. I mean, the report looks so similar to what I normally work with. And it just kind of had that aha moment where I felt, you know, past and present kind of connected. Um, so that, that was the inspiration for the paper. You write that the Continental Army had to rebuild itself. Why? Yeah, basically uh, half the army left. I mean, when it first started uh, outside Boston in 1775, that fall, uh, when the war first starts, um, it's just this giant revolving door of uh, militiamen coming in. They're trying to formalize the Continental Army and make it more official. Uh, but, I mean, before they even have that first victory at Boston, half the army leaves before the siege is even over. Uh, they go down from about 22,000 around, and then they're down to under 10,000. And Washington is writing his letters like, oh, this is a serious problem. Like, what are we going to do here, guys? And then the very next year, uh, after the Battle of New York, that defeat, uh, and before Trenton and Princeton, uh, it happens again. Half the army leaves again. They get down. Uh, one estimate had it down or then a thousand soldiers or so was the lowest estimate I saw. So, wow, that's a pretty serious problem. The army, so twice now, they almost disband in the middle of the, you know, active fighting going on. But it's not, you know, a British uh, battlefield operation killing them all. They're just leaving. Like, wow, that's a serious problem. And so I was looking at how the, the Continental Congress and the Board of War was trying to address this problem. And they keep radically shifting uh, the organizational structure. Uh, at one point, they do the 88th Battalion Resolve, and that would have about 90,000 soldiers. They never even get close to that number. And then three years later, they switch it again to about half that many regiments, I think around 49 regiments. Uh, so they're constantly restructuring and rebuilding the Army, trying to get it right. How was the Army, to quote your article, an administrative nightmare? Yeah, I mean... Uh, Firstly, just start, they're starting from scratch. So there is no national army. This is the first one. It's unprecedented for Americans. Um, so in just doing that work uh, to begin with, and anyone who works in human resources or that kind of personal administration can probably relate, uh, it's not easy. Even today, we have all this technology and dozens of uh, you know, IT systems helping us track everyone, and they're doing this all by hand and for the first time, and they're facing this extremely aggressive personnel turnover. I tried to map this out and make a chart. It, it takes some sharp dives and rises and falls, people coming and going, massive desertions. They're trying to keep track of all those people uh, just by hand with written reports. Uh, that must have been just totally unmanageable. And then the, the second thing I found that really compounded this uh, was that the Board of War and really the Continental Congress, as it it's gets started, it has no real authority to make the states do anything. So there's this whole debate about nationalism versus localism, and the states are totally dependent, or the, the Continental Army is totally dependent on the states, but they're essentially just asking, you know, please give us people and supplies and money 
and it's up to the states to fill their quotas, which a lot of them are really terrible and hesitant at doing. So uh, that's why I call it an administrative nightmare. Talk about how the British system of paperwork management actually ended up aiding the American Patriot Army. Yeah, what I meant by that, even though they're, they're starting from scratch in terms of making the first National Army for America, uh, they do have the British as a model, and the organization does model the British in many ways. A lot of the senior officers do have experience working both as uh, the militia officers, but they had actual service serving in the British Army. Uh, Washington himself had spent most, much of his life uh, striving to become a British officer, even though he never got a commission. Uh, he had plenty of experience working with them. So did uh, Horatio Gates and Charles Lee and some others. Um, we know that the books, uh, this is another journal of the American Revolution article, uh, Washington recommended uh, five books, and they were all from uh, European authors, most of them British, and that contained a lot of the, the description of the administrative duties. So, um, and then, of course, Baron von Steuben and Volley Forge, he becomes the chief of staff. He kind of restructures their staff uh, to be more in line with the European model, and that, that really helped out a lot. Um, so they're not totally clueless. They have a model to follow, and I think that really helped. You write a lot about something called strength reporting in your article. What was strength reporting and why was it so important? Sure. Strength reporting, it's the most basic administrative task in, in any military operation. I mean, uh, the personnel sections of the S-1 sections of uh, the Army today, this is a, you know the daily thing we do. It's the bread and butter. It's basically how many people are in the Army. Who's, who's here? Who showed up for work today? And so I was just totally struck by how they were doing this in the Continental Army with these strength returns. Uh, they're calculating by hand on these giant sheets of paper, uh, listing every unit, how many people are there, uh, you know, who's sick, who's deserted, you know, who's in charge, who's the commander, all these various statistics, how many people they need to recruit for the unit to reach its maximum number. Um, so th these reports, it's really the bread and butter, the most basic information for the commander to, to plan. Uh, pl to plan missions and just make basic decisions. You know, who, who is actually here in this unit? You can't do anything else. That's kind of step one. How did the Continental Army adapt its recruitment process? Yeah, I was also struck by this. Um, uh, basically, I found that, that they couldn't just rely on patriotism alone to recruit. Uh, they had to use everyone who was available, anyone who would sign up for the Army. And there was a huge uh, battle. In some ways, they're competing with themselves against the state militia systems, uh, because the militia was a lot more, um, it was more preferable for a lot of people. There was shorter terms of service. You didn't have to leave your home, uh, frequently paid better. Um, so not everyone was keen on joining this national army. The militia looked a lot more attractive. Uh, so because of that, uh, they really had to just, they couldn't be picky with who they chose. They really had to open it up and it, uh, scrape from the, the lower societies the lower taxable population. Uh, this was interesting from Horatio Gates. He was the first adjutant general and his uh, recruiting instructions. He said, exclude uh, all Africans, vagabonds, British deserters, immigrants. And then the, basically the exact opposite happens. I mean, the majority of the army is foreign immigrants. It's 25% Irish, 12% German, over 5,000 African-Americans serve in the Continental Army. Um, so it's it's not this image, you know, maybe from Mel Gibson or the movie The Patriot of, you know, all these land-holding farmers joining the army. There is some of that, certainly, but it's really, um, you know, an army of immigrants, uh, outcasts, I think. And so that's how they they had to recruit the, uh, those people. You also wrote how uh, enlistments were altered to face new challenges. What did you mean by that? 
Yeah, the big one was when they first started, the enlistment was for one year, and they found out that wasn't working, that wasn't long enough. Washington complains about this constantly. Uh, so they shifted to three years or the duration of the war. That uh, really helped stave off this aggressive personnel turnover. Um, the other one was that though Washington wanted to enact a national draft, uh, Congress never could carry that out. But several states also enacted drafts as well uh, that helped the enlistment challenge. How did official structure pay for soldiers during the war? Yeah, what I found about pay, um, there's nothing too surprising about how they did it. It was very bureaucratic, you know, paymasters used the strength returns and to request the printed money from Congress and distribute it to the units. Uh, but the interesting thing about pay was just how bad they were at doing it. I mean, they really, um, soldiers are going over a year without payment at times, like right? Um, the Pennsylvania mutiny, the, those soldiers had gone over a year without being paid. Um, so that was just shocking to me to go that long. And then even when they did get paid, by the end of the war in the 1780s, the inflation rates are so bad that money is useless. At, at one point, it's not even being accepted as legal tender. Uh, so that was just shocking. And they really only overcome this with these short-term Band-Aid fixes uh, when Robert Morris takes charge as superintendent of finance in 1780, just before he worked down, he starts uh, using his own personal fortune and the Morris notes to pay off different logistical contractors. And uh, he secures some French loans to pay the soldiers right before Yorktown to make sure there's, there's no issues with mutinies on the way down there. Um, so they really never quite fix the pay issue. It's only just short-term Band-Aid fixes that get them through. How does this article help us to understand the Revolutionary Era better? Yeah, I would say two things to that. Uh, the first one is just the precariousness of the entire situation and just how fragile the revolution was. I mean, the Continental Army easily could have disbanded at multiple points in the war, particularly when it first starts right outside of Boston. And then again, after the defeat at New York, that was a real precarious moment. Uh, that army barely held together. And what I found was, it, you know, the Continental Army is itself, it just has to exist for the revolution to continue. They just have to not lose. If they wait long enough, uh, you know, the British will get frustrated enough. They, they have other things going on in the periphery against France and Spain. And so the British, you know, eventually get exhausted. But so the Continental Army, in some sense, it just has to survive. And to survive, it just has to sustain its people. And so as long as it has people joining the army, you know, they'll be good to go. And so... The second major thing I would say towards understanding the Revolutionary Era better is that during the revolution, there's this debate over localism versus nationalism in terms of are the states actually going to unify and commit to the, a national vision? And that definitely reflected itself in the army as to how much, how far would the states go to support the national army as a project uh, versus their own militias. And we, that manifests everywhere, especially in the recruitment practices in terms of people wanting to join the militias versus the new national army. Um, and so that debate definitely is a flashpoint in the army. And I don't think it's resolved uh, by the end of the war either. That, that debate continues. Mike Matheny, thank you for joining us. Thank you. The music played in this episode included works by Kevin McLeod and the Sturbridge Colonial Militia. Any unauthorized reproduction or use of this podcast without the express written permission of the Journal of the American Revolution is strictly prohibited. For everyone here at Dispatches, I'm Brady Kreitzer saying so long.